Welcome again to the Rules Plus Podcast. In the previous two episodes, I talked about the changes for 2023 in the NCAA football rules. In a so-called off year for changes, when the Rules Committee is supposed to limit itself to minimal tweaking of the rules, we've seen nevertheless that there's plenty of meaty stuff to talk about, even with just a handful of changes, mostly regarding timing topics at that. You will miss this meaty stuff if you settle for a superficial scan of only Section 1 of the Rules Book, where the official text of the rules appears, and if you largely ignore Section 2 of the Rules Book, where the collection of approved rulings and, new this year, a list of officiating standards appear. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about the meaty stuff in those three places. One, the editorial changes in the official text of the rules, two, the collection of approved rulings, and three, the list of officiating standards. In the front of the NCAA rules book, you'll find on the page following the list of rules changes an index of editorial changes, misleading some to regard such changes as mere wordplay or comma hunting, an afterthought a collection hardly worth much time in reviewing. But officials overlook this understudy material at our own risk, because to a perceptive reader, these changes in vocabulary, verb choice, verb tense, or phrasing can provide hints about a rule's rationale and intent. Halfway through the rules book, you'll find the extensive collection of approved rulings and the six-page presentation of officiating standards. Approved rulings are akin to the body of case law that an attorney might consult to review precedent, and the officiating standards are akin to a litany of best practices for working a game. So, let's begin. For the first topic, I want to review the editorial changes to see if there are hidden insights to discover. As a writer and editor by profession, I know where the NCAA Rules Committee is coming from when every year it can't resist tinkering with its earlier work by making editorial changes to existing rules. If you're a writer, you know that a text is never finished, only abandoned, to paraphrase the sentiment about poetry of 19th century French poet, essayist, and philosopher Paul Valéry. The NCAA Rules Committee just can't leave well enough alone either, because saying it well enough isn't good enough. If the committee can make a badly phrased rule better, the committee will never abandon it. For 2023, the NCAA Rules Committee has chosen no less than 15 orphans to rehabilitate, covering topics ranging from making the game clock operator suffer along with the officiating crew by working on the sideline, to clarifying when a player is lined up in the tackle box. The committee always lists significant editorial changes separately from major rules changes because it maintains that editorial changes aren't new rules. But that can be debatable, 
as I'm about to suggest, citing an example of a seemingly innocuous change in 2022 to Rule 6313 concerning the enforcement spot for fouls by Team A during a scrimmage kick. Let's revisit the 2022 editorial change I referred to. The editorial change to 6313 in 2022 added two deceptively brief phrases as clarification of previous spot. I'm going to read the wording of interest indicating the two added phrases. Quote, penalties for fouls by the kicking team during a scrimmage kick play may be enforced by rule either at the previous spot as the basic spot or at the spot where the ball belongs to Team B, end quote. I did leave out a little bit of material for the sake of clarity. The two added phrases are, by rule, and as the basic spot. That is, after enforced, the phrase was added by rule, and after previous spot, that was further identified as the basic spot. In short, the receiving team can have the punt repeated or have the penalty tacked on to where it's going to start its offensive series. It's easy to overlook the two new phrases, especially considering that the first phrase, by rule, seems utterly obvious. I can't imagine why the Rules Committee thought that redundancy is needed. But the second phrase isn't redundant, and in fact, I'm going to make a case that it changes penalty enforcement rather than simply clarifying it. Here's where things get technical, unless you're an official familiar with the concept of basic spot for enforcing penalties. Bear with me a moment if you're an official while I offer a quick and dirty explanation. While some penalties specify the spot from which penalty yardage should be marked off, many penalties do not. When an enforcement spot is not specified, we use a default location called the basic spot based on the type of play involved, a run, a pass, or a kick. To complicate matters, whichever team fouled and where the foul occurred may affect where the penalty is marked off from. Relative to the basic spot, there are four foul situations in any play. Fouls ahead of or behind the basic spot, depending on which team fouled. When the fouling team possesses the ball and its foul occurred behind the basic spot, the penalty is stepped off from the spot of the foul. In all other situations, the yardage step off is from the basic spot. This provision is indeed called the 3 and 1 principle, defined in Rules 233 and 10.2.2e. So here's why the editorial change matters. Before the editorial change, Rule 6.3.13 specified the previous spot as the place from which to step off a penalty against Team A if Team B didn't exercise its option to have the penalty added to where it would be putting the ball in play. But by anointing the previous spot as a basic spot, the change introduces the complication of the 3-in-1 principle. 
For example, if a punter bats a loose ball that's on the ground after he's mishandled the snap, he could still pick the ball up and punt it. After the play, Team B could decline the penalty and accept the touchdown its returner just scored. Or, if he didn't score, Team B could accept 10 yards added to where they'll have the ball, or accept 10 yards from the spot where the punter illegally batted the ball, with a loss of down by Team A. Before this editorial change, the third option would have been a penalty walked off from the previous spot, not from the spot perhaps 15 yards or more closer to the goal line where the punter batted the ball. So was this 2022 editorial change actually a rules change? You make the call. Okay, let's return to 2023. See what you think about these nine editorial changes this year that are relevant to Texas high school football. Number one, guidelines for granting timeout requests, 331B. The change updates subsection B to reflect the rules change prohibiting consecutive timeouts. It reads now, quote, when a team's charged timeouts are exhausted, or are not available, officials shall not acknowledge a timeout request. The change is the added text, or are not available. Because many football rules encompass principles that touch on elements of several rules, a major change has a ripple effect on wording in several places in the rule book. The challenge for the rules editor is to identify the several places where wording must be adjusted to prevent contradictions or introduce unintended interpretations. That would seem to be the case here. Two, clarifying clock status in the last two minutes of each half, 343B. The change addresses a possible loophole for a team to exercise an option not intended by the rule to stop or start the clock after a penalty. It reads now, quote, if the game clock is stopped to complete a penalty for a foul by the team ahead in the score, or either team if the score is tied, inside the last two minutes of a half, and the clock would start by rule on the referee's signal, it will start on the snap at the option of the offended team, end quote. The lengthy added phrase is, and the clock would start by rule on the referee's signal. Previously, the rule established as the default principle that if after penalty enforcement, the clock would start on the referee's signal, the offended team must be given the opportunity not to have it do this. This editorial change seems to recognize that if the result of the previous play would mean that the clock would start on the snap anyway, such as after a runner goes out of bounds, then there's no option to be presented to the offended coach. You could have read into the rule that the offended team always has an option about snap versus ready. If, for example, the team on defense is trailing in the game and is eager for the clock to run out on the offense, that coach might have thought he was empowered to make a request to start the clock on the ready, 
even though the previous play ended out of bounds. This editorial change may, in fact, be in response to such an incident somewhere last season. 3. Clarifying the 10-second runoff option in the last two minutes of each half. 344A. As with the previous clarification, this change may also be a response to genuine confusion or attempts at gamemanship last year. The Rules Committee has added a seemingly redundant phrase that explicitly states a 10-second runoff may only be granted to an offended team if, quote, the penalty for the other team's foul is accepted, end quote. Only a few lines later, the rule already had this clear language, quote, the offended team may accept the yardage penalty and decline the 10-second runoff. If the penalty is declined, the 10-second runoff is declined by rule, end quote. It's hard to see how introducing redundancy helps anything here. Four, aligning neutral zone requirements on an illegal kick with those for an illegal forward pass. 6310C. Here's a change for the nitpickers out there concerning when a kick is illegal. Not, by the way, to be confused with an entirely different foul for illegally kicking the ball in Rule 9944. Previously, the rule said that a kick is illegal if it's made, quote, when the kicker's entire body is beyond the neutral zone, end quote. Pretty clear, right? Well, think again. This year's editorial change adds, quote, and the ball is or has been, end quote, beyond the neutral zone. I guess punters are good enough to run with the ball in their extended hand trailing behind them, or perhaps to pull off a soccer bicycle kick. And I guess our H or L is good enough to see where that ball is when the punters do this. So this change was clearly desperately needed. Well, in fairness to the committee, the added phrase does indeed align this rule for an illegal kick with the rule for an illegal forward pass. With the change, the language in Rule 6 now matches the language in 732E. A forward pass is illegal if, quote, it is thrown from in or behind the neutral zone after a ball carrier's entire body and the ball have been beyond the neutral zone, end quote. And consider this. While the point of the editorial change seems to be the adding of a specific reference to the position of the ball, I think the change here that is key to aligning the kick and pass rules is in fact adding the verb in present perfect tense, has been, along with the verb in simple present tense, is. That addition clarifies that just as a player can't cross and then go back behind the neutral zone to throw a pass, neither can a player do that to kick the ball? I think the Rules Committee may have missed making an editorial change to 216.7c to align the critical verb tense there as well. The verb tense here echoes the equally important verb tense 
choice in 216.7b that defines when a ball loose from a kick, quote, has crossed the neutral zone, end quote, namely, when it touches something beyond the neutral zone. A ball that is booted sky high and is blown back behind the neutral zone has not, by definition, crossed the neutral zone. Such a scenario has profoundly different implications for what can happen during a scrimmage kickdown than a scenario in which a kick hits several yards beyond the neutral zone and deflects back behind the neutral zone. Critical is the notion of where a player or the ball has been. Verb tense is no less a critical editorial consideration than in AP English class. Five, clarifying language to reflect a try that occurs in extra periods. Here's another editorial change to bring alignment between separate rules with overlapping provisions for a game protocol. The tiebreaker provision for teams to trade two-point try attempts, beginning with the third overtime period, has been buried in the closing sentence of 313E. Now it is alluded to in 832 as well, confirming what has been obvious. A try down may occur even in the absence of a touchdown if we're in overtime. Six. Clarifying Team A fumbles on a try before a change in possession. 832D5. This rule covers the five ways that a try can end. The fifth way provides that a try down ends when a member of Team A catches or recovers a teammate's fumble. This provision mirrors the so called fourth down fumble rule in 413J. You may remember where the inspiration for this rule came from. The so-called fumble by Oakland Raiders quarterback Ken Stabler on the last play of the game in 1978, ultimately recovered in the end zone by tight end Dave Casper for the winning score. So previously, the rules for a try down and a scrimmage down have been the same, and both rules have had the same exception. The play is over unless the fumble and recovery happen after a change of possession. The editorial change here removes that exception from only the try-down situation, contrary to the typical change rationale to bring separate provisions into alignment rather than to make them differ. Seven, clarifying when a back is lined up in the tackle box. 916A2. Here is an editorial change that is a model for adding clarity where before there was ambiguity. Whereas last year the wording referred simply to backs lined up within the tackle box, end quote, the new wording leaves little room for doubt about what within means, referring now to, quote, backs lined up with any part of their body inside the tackle box, end quote. Thank you, Rules Committee. Eight, blocking below the waist exception expanded, 916B2. The editorial change allows Team B players to block below the waist against a runner rather than simply a ball carrier. 
the latter term used until now. Wouldn't a rose by any other name smell as sweet? Juliet Capulet was into Romeo Montague, not into football. So how could she know there's an important difference between a runner and a ball carrier? In 227-7A, a runner is defined as, quote, a player in possession of a live ball or simulating possession of a live ball, end quote. In subsection B, a ball carrier is defined as, quote, a runner in possession of a live ball, end quote. So this editorial change confirms that it's not a foul if defenders take on the player carrying out the fake. Nine, modifies when a kicker's protection ends. Nine, one, 16, A, four, C. The definition of the tackle box in 234-1 shows that it extends vertically all the way back to the end line. So while the punter's special protection ends when he moves more than five yards laterally either way, he was technically still protected even when he moved vertically to chase a bad snap. The editorial change now explicitly ends his special protection after he is with the ball more than five yards behind his position at the snap. So what do you think of these nine editorial tweaks? Which clarify original intent? Which inject fresh intent into the rules? Which blend both objectives artfully? As a body of work, do they make the game easier to watch, easier to coach, easier to officiate? What impresses me the most about the Rules Committee taking such care and exercising such nuanced judgment in their work is the message it sends to officials. We should care as much about intensely reading rules as the committee does about intensely writing them. The point of writing hard is making reading easy. Now on to the second topic, I'm going to be looking at using adjustments to the collection of approved rulings to appraise the impact of the 2023 editorial changes. NCAA Secretary and Rules Editor Steve Shaw explains that the role of approved rulings is to provide interpretation. Each ruling, he says, is, quote, an official decision on a given statement of facts. It serves to illustrate the spirit and application of the rule, end quote. From year to year, approved rulings evolve in two ways as appropriate. Existing rulings are, quote, altered significantly, end quote, and new rulings are added to the collection. For 2023, nine existing rulings have been modified and 13 new rulings have been added. Only one of the modified rulings regards an editorial change and six of the new rulings regard editorial changes, but four of those six are regarding just one rule, 9-1-6. Since editorial changes are supposed to clarify rather than break new ground, we wouldn't expect those numbers to be any higher. 
You'll recall that the clarifications in 916 were about determining whether a back is lined up in the tackle box in subsection A and about license to block a runner, not simply a ball carrier, below the waist in subsection B. All of the four added rulings are about subsection A, the lining up in the tackle box issue. There's not a whisper about the runner versus ball carrier distinction in subsection B. That's pretty compelling evidence that the Rules Committee regards that safety-related clarification of the tackle box as perhaps the most impactful of the nine editorial changes I've chosen to discuss. And now on to the third topic, formalizing philosophical principles for applying the playing rules with the debut of a collection of officiating standards. The 2023 NCAA football rules book features the pilot innovation of a six-page prologue to the collection of approved rulings, that prologue entitled Officiating Standards. The prologue codifies, standardizes, and legitimizes a body of philosophies, best practices, and rules of thumb that have comprised a sort of oral tradition passed on across successive generations of officials. That's my take on it. The Rules Committee's take is this. Quote, Officiating responsibilities and mechanics are specified in the current edition of the Football Officials Manual, published annually under the jurisdiction of the Collegiate Commissioners Association and College Football Officiating, LLC, CFO. Officials are responsible for knowing and applying the material in the manual. Included in this prologue are the rules-based officiating standards that have been adopted for all NCAA games. The prologue is essentially a compendium of best practices comprising 15 sections, each devoted to one aspect of working a game, from ball spotting to fumbles, from passing situations to kicking plays, and so forth. You might characterize this innovation as what happens when Stephen Covey meets Gene Steratore. I think this podcast will have more to share next time about this bold NCAA experiment to encourage consistency in officiating across the country. If you are an AFOA member, we're a week closer to the resumption of our live Rules Plus discussions in August, and I hope this podcast extends access to and interest in our deep dives into rules and mechanics. If you are not an AFOA member, I encourage you to consider joining us or your local football officials association in your state. Email us at recruiting at afoa.ws. Visit our website at www.austinfootballofficials.org 
or call us at 512-298-2987. I hope you'll come back and visit this podcast regularly. Till next time, have a great week.